1: Summer 1969. Clifford Stone
2: hadn't been in Vietnam very long, a matter of minutes in fact. But he'd been thrown into the thick of it. Bodies were scattered all around him, the remnants of what looked like a bloody, awful firefight. But he didn't have time to examine the damage. He was on a mission. In the clearing ahead, he saw
1: his objective, a crash-landed fighter jet on the jungle floor. Despite
2: the crash, it had managed to remain intact. The cockpit was empty, and a quick exploration of the ground around it revealed nothing new. Still, Clifford was on alert. He knew the Viet Cong might be lurking around any
1: corner or hiding behind any tree, or in the canopy above, or...
2: A whisper cut off his train of thought. Clifford jerked his head toward the noise. He leveled his gun at a figure, standing on top of the downed jet. It was small, four feet tall. A kid? No, a child wouldn't have that slimy, rough, gray skin. Or those gigantic, pitch-black, oval eyes that stared right back at him. The being seemed to ask him a question. What are you doing here? And as his finger tightened around the trigger of his gun, Clifford prepared to answer the small, gray alien in front of him.
1: Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be
2: confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. Now, we're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable, others
1: may seem all too real, but these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology and each story has garnered thousands if not millions of true believers and for that reason we think they're worth exploring you can find all episodes of extraterrestrial and all other parcast originals for free on spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to stream extraterrestrial for free
2: on spotify just open the app and type extraterrestrial in the search bar parcast we're grateful for you our listeners you allow us to do what we love So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Clifford Stone, a military veteran who claims he was tasked with retrieving downed UFOs. This week, we'll follow Clifford's lifelong relationship with
1: extraterrestrial life forms from his childhood to his military service, and how this affiliation convinced him to protect these aliens at all
2: costs. Next week, we'll explore how Clifford used bureaucratic channels to expose what he believed was a massive alien cover-up. Then we'll decide whether the government documents that Clifford brought to light actually reveal a conspiracy, or are simply a load of bunk. The way he tells it, Clifford Stone was four years old the first time he encountered an alien. The year was 1954. New Boston, Ohio. Christmas Eve. Little Clifford was tucked
1: into bed, but he was wide awake, waiting, excited, and nervous for Santa Claus.
2: He knew he should be sleeping, but... He couldn't. Downstairs, the house was empty. Clifford's parents had gone to a holiday party and left him in the care of his half-sister. When Clifford opened his eyes and looked up, he assumed she was the figure looming over him. The shape asked him a question. Do you want to meet the Boogeyman? Clifford didn't know who the Boogeyman was. So he said yes and followed the shape downstairs and out to the back porch. There on the road behind the house, Clifford saw a man driving a tractor, but
1: as the vehicle approached, the man turned his head and looked at the little boy.
2: His eyes were blood red. He seemed to be made of a clay-like substance, his entire body a dark brownish hue. Eyes locked on Clifford, The strange man continued down the road. The shape that had led Clifford downstairs told him that he had to go back to bed. Clifford complied. In the morning, Clifford's half-sister had no
1: idea what he was talking about. She hadn't been awake in the middle of the night at all. But of course, this was Christmas Day, and Clifford was only four years old. The excitement of presents and celebration quickly pushed the event from his mind.
2: This strange event was, in itself, not necessarily connected to UFOs. A superstitious person might blame ghosts. A skeptic could point to the overactive imagination of a child. But for Clifford Stone, this was only the first of many extraterrestrial encounters. These tales have little evidence to back them up. But Clifford writes
1: passionately about each encounter in his book, Eyes Only, and has maintained his version
2: of events for over 30 years in various interviews and writings. For many of Clifford's early encounters with aliens, we'll have to rely on this testimony. Clifford reported another unverifiable
1: encounter a few weeks after Christmas. Strangely, this visitation had other witnesses who later refused to corroborate his claims. Clifford and his cousins, Larry and Herbie, were playing outside. Suddenly, they
2: heard a loud rumbling overhead. Up in the clouds, three strange, inhuman lights danced around in the sky. The boys stared at this otherworldly phenomenon until their mothers called them inside. Again, being children, they didn't think much of it. For all they knew, strange lights might just be something that happened sometimes. The rest of Clifford's childhood was marked by
1: further incidents of this sort. He would see disks hovering over his yard. He would hear voices of dead relatives. He would sense terrifying creatures hiding around his house. Clifford was terrified by these visitations and events, but he felt helpless. His parents dismissed them as childhood nightmares.
2: He needed to find somebody who believed his stories. One afternoon in 1957, he walked down to the drugstore. He wanted to buy a copy of True Magazine, which had a feature on UFOs, a newfound interest of Clifford's thanks to his strange experiences. But True Magazine typically catered to adult men, and the drugstore clerk refused to sell 7-year-old Clifford a copy. A nearby customer overheard Clifford's plight.
1: He came over and introduced himself as Captain Brown. He was an Air Force pilot who shared Clifford's fascination with flying saucers. He bought two copies of the magazine, one for
2: himself and one for Clifford. That afternoon, Captain Brown walked Clifford home and engaged his parents in a long discussion about UFOs. The captain said he wasn't sure what he believed, but he could tell them that he'd seen some strange things in his time in the cockpit. And Captain Brown seemed oddly convinced that Clifford held some sort of key to figuring the whole thing out. The two became friends after a time. Clifford admired Captain
1: Brown's disciplined military lifestyle. But shortly after befriending the captain,
2: events became even stranger for Clifford. Later that same summer of 1957, he and his friend Bonnie ventured out into the woods. They regularly went on little adventurous treks together, usually hoping to find animals. On this day, they came across a little bird, a baby who had fallen from its nest and broken its beak. Not knowing any better,
1: Clifford submerged the bird in water the way his mother did with him when he got cuts on his
2: arms and legs, inadvertently. Clifford drowned the bird. As young Clifford berated himself for his idiocy, a being emerged from the woods. It was a humanoid figure, but with gray, bumpy, rough skin and large black eyes. It comforted the crying boy. Then it introduced itself as Corona. Corona
1: told Clifford that he'd been assigned to watch over him to study the boy in the hopes of better understanding how humans worked. And he told Clifford that many individual humans worldwide had been given similar alien watchers who'd been monitoring humanity's progress for millennia. Corona comforted Clifford,
2: then left. After he received this revelation, Clifford's alien encounters only became more frequent. Beings would visit Clifford regularly.
1: Sometimes they looked like Corona, other times they took the form of human
2: children or another alien race altogether. However, according to Clifford, nobody could see the aliens but him. They were somehow capable of camouflaging themselves from everyone except for those they deemed worthy of interaction. This makes his claims impossible to verify And yet, Clifford
1: says that sometimes, the aliens would slip up and others would perceive their presence,
2: as happened one day in the summer of 1957. The knocking on the garage door jolted seven-year-old Clifford to attention. It was his best friend, Delbert, asking if Clifford wanted to come play. But Clifford was, at that moment, engaged in conversation with one of the strange, child-sized aliens who periodically visited him. It was promising to show him incredible new technologies, if he could just get rid of his friend. But Clifford didn't act quickly enough. Delbert, annoyed
1: at the lack of response, broke in through a window. When he landed in the garage, the alien disappeared, but not before Delbert caught the faintest glimpse of him. Delbert managed to dust himself off and confront Clifford. Then
2: he asked who had just been there. Clifford managed to talk Delbert down, but he was shaken by the experience and by the close call. All through middle and high school, these encounters continued. Clifford came to view the
1: aliens as friends, but it was another companion, Captain Brown, who would
2: inspire the most important decision of his life. In 1967, Clifford decided to follow in Brown's footsteps and enlist in the US Army. It was a decision that he believed he had been subtly guided toward by the aliens, beginning with that fateful day in the drugstore. This theory
1: would soon prove true, as his very first mission in the field led to his strangest encounter yet. Clifford came face to face with proof
2: of alien life along with an entire squadron of soldiers. Next, Clifford Stone attempts his first UFO crash retrieval. Now, back to our story. Clifford Stone claimed that he encountered aliens constantly throughout his childhood, from about 1954 through 1967. With some encouragement from a friendly Air Force pilot, Clifford joined the military after graduating high school, Little did he know, his most astonishing encounters with extraterrestrial life were still to come. He enlisted in 1968, the
1: height of the Vietnam War. Over 16,000 U.S. soldiers would be killed that year. It was a gruesome, grisly time. At first, Clifford was safe from the action he was stationed in Fort Lee, Virginia, conducting
2: training exercises. One year into his time there, in 1969, Clifford had another extraterrestrial encounter. It was 2 a.m. when the
1: order came in, plane crash in the small town of Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania. In the freezing night air, Clifford bundled his belongings together and got ready to go. He was assigned to work the NBC team, Nuclear Biological
2: Cleanup, We should note now that outside of Clifford Stone's own account of his experiences, the term NBC does not appear to be frequently used to mean nuclear biological cleanup, nor is it a current division of the U.S. military. However, today's CBRN, or Chemical, Biological, Radiological, and Nuclear division, was once called NBC or nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. According to Clifford, that was
1: the cover his superiors used for crash retrievals. In reality, he and his team were being sent to contain evidence of extraterrestrial life.
2: It was a chilly, wintry morning. The sun had not yet risen over the horizon. Lights were positioned all around the crash site to illuminate it in the darkness. The squad was lashed by icy winds. Amid
1: them, Clifford held a Geiger counter which could measure the radiation coming off the crash site
2: and let them know if they were in danger from any kind of nuclear contaminants. Before getting too close, they set up a perimeter. Once the unit had finished locking down the area to prevent bystanders from wandering through, Clifford's commanding officer walked up to him. The CO was a man known only as the Colonel. He dressed in civilian clothes and yet was undoubtedly in charge of just about any room he walked into. He was a gruff, unforgiving man, not the type you wanted to cross. And in the wee hours of this ice-cold morning, the Colonel was sending Clifford in alone to investigate the crash ahead of the rest of his team. He needed Clifford to check for signs of radiation before they began clearing the debris. As Clifford made his way through bramble and brush, the craft came into view. It was like nothing he had ever seen before. The ship was shaped like the heel of a shoe. It had a transparent canopy over the roof like a jet fighter, but the canopy appeared to open at the sides rather than sliding open from the top. Clifford continued to approach the craft. As he
1: got closer, he noticed something hanging from the ship's window. An entity, he called it, the body of something inhuman.
2: Clifford radioed back to the colonel, asking for backup, but the colonel denied him, instead asking for his Geiger counter readings. Moving quickly, Clifford read the counter higher than normal radioactivity, but not enough to be dangerous to humans. Then Clifford described the alien body to the Colonel. He said, quote, This craft didn't come from anywheres on this planet. The Colonel quickly recalled Clifford back to the squad. A separate unit was sent to handle the craft and the body that Clifford had seen. For his part, Clifford monitored some of the retrieval process from afar, but was soon recalled, with the rest of his squad, back to Fort Lee, Virginia. This was the
1: first of about 12 retrieval missions by Clifford's estimate. But he wasn't considered
2: in the know quite yet. The military wasn't about to open up with their secrets. It was his second mission, Clifford claims, that really brought him into the world of crash retrieval.
1: Clifford and his squad were being flown down to the Florida Everglades for a training exercise, or so they'd been told. When their plane first touched down, one of Clifford's
2: brothers-in-arms looked out the window with a skeptical gaze. He thought he recognized where they were. He said, If this isn't Oakland, California, then I'll kiss your hindsight. The men laughed, then stopped suddenly. The colonel, overseeing the mission, leveled a gun at the soldier's head. He warned the others, the next person that opens their mouth, I will personally blow their head off. It was becoming clear in Clifford's mind that this was high-level, serious business. Once things settled down, the squad was transferred to a new plane. Oakland was merely
1: a pit stop. After a long journey, the next flight touched down again in unfamiliar territory, Wherever they were, it didn't look like any part of Florida that Clifford had ever seen. He reckoned they were somewhere in Southeast Asia. Given the war, the logical guess was Vietnam, though he would later come to think
2: that it was actually neighboring Cambodia. As the team disembarked, Clifford noticed the bodies of fellow soldiers slain, lying in the grass. There had been a fight with the Viet Cong here recently. He and his team quickly
1: reached the site of the crash. Clifford sized up the situation and realized with a little confusion that this was an American plane, a B-52, in fact. The only odd thing about it was that, despite having clearly crash-landed, it was in pretty good condition. It hadn't broken apart into tiny
2: pieces the way planes tended to upon impact. Clifford was actually relieved These were human deaths. This was a human craft. It was ugly, but it was familiar. It wouldn't stay that way for long. Clifford circled the craft, looking for some clue
1: as to how the plane had crashed without completely falling to pieces. But he went all the way around the jet without finding a clue until he heard a familiar voice in his head. It said, Clifford, what are you doing here? And it sounded just like the aliens who had come to visit him so frequently in his childhood.
2: Clifford now saw, perched atop the plane, a four-foot creature with slate-gray skin and big egg-shaped eyes, the classic gray alien look. Startled, Clifford jumped back and immediately acted as he'd been trained to. Clifford yelled to the others, V.C., 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 Viet Cong. He was alerting them to the presence of the enemy. The whole squadron began raining down hellfire upon the craft and the creature on top of it. And somehow, it stoically rode out the onslaught. Grenade launchers, machine guns, nothing seemed to harm the creature. Realizing their weapons had no effect, the squadron
1: withdrew across a nearby river. They returned to their staging area where they'd erected tents shortly upon landing. Clifford assumed that they would be returning to the plane soon and then heading back to base. Instead, he got a visit from
2: the colonel. The colonel handed Clifford a pad and pencil and told him to begin writing down all his recollections from the incident. The colonel assured him that no matter how crazy the details sounded, they wanted the truth. Dutifully, Clifford recorded his notes from the encounter, not holding anything back. He even confessed to his childhood alien visitations. When he was finished, the colonel collected the notes and boarded a plane with Clifford bound for Virginia. The bizarre incident was a harbinger of a new phase of
1: Clifford's military career. Now, he worked in UFO retrieval. And thanks to his honest, thoroughly detailed debrief, the colonel trusted the soldier
2: as an expert on alien affairs. Clifford gave one account of an event that happened early in his UFO retrieval career, perhaps the defining story of his life. A few months after the incident in Cambodia, a black Dodge pulled up outside Clifford's quarters. From the back seat, the Colonel beckoned him to enter. Aware of Clifford's childhood experiences,
1: the military had ruled that Clifford could interact with the aliens Because he was a designated contactee chosen by these extraterrestrial species,
2: he should be able to deal with them more effectively. Now, the Colonel was here to call on Clifford's unique set of skills and experiences. He was needed to interview an alien. By late 1969,
1: Clifford was getting used to this kind of request. For weeks, he claims, the military had been running various alien encounters past him, gauging his opinion and seeking his advice. But this was a whole other situation, a sit-down with one of these creatures. Even after all his childhood visitations, Clifford was still in awe of the opportunity. Before, he'd always met the
2: aliens on their terms. Now, he was coming to one of them. They arrived at the Air Force base where the creature was being held. The colonel led Clifford through the facility toward a back room. Finally,
1: they reached the tiny, cramped quarters where the alien was waiting. Clifford examined it head to toe. Its skin was off-white, not pure, brilliant white, but not quite gray either. It had a large, round head and black, egg-shaped eyes. It looked like the classic gray alien, down to its short stature, around four feet tall, and that strange skin
2: tone. Clifford was awestruck looking at the entity. Then his chest tightened as the alien's head turned slowly. Their eyes met. Clifford perceived the alien's words in his mind.
1: Clearly, as if spoken aloud, Clifford heard a desperate plea. It said... I am afraid. And suddenly, Clifford knew that his duty was not to the military, but to this captured
2: being pleading for its life. Next, a daring escape jeopardizes Clifford's career. Now, back to our story. All his life, Clifford Stone had been contacted by various extraterrestrials. Now, in the military, he was often sent to investigate crashed UFO sites. But 19-year-old Clifford faced his greatest trial yet at the end of 1969 when, in service to his country, he was called in to speak with a recently captured alien. At least that's how Clifford tells the story in interviews and in his
1: book. These are experiences that he's unable to corroborate. If they
2: existed, They were highly classified missions. Yes, but as Clifford claimed, he was brought to an Air Force base and led to a back room where the captured alien awaited him. Telepathically, it sent him a message, I am afraid. Uncertain how to respond, Clifford asked aloud, why are you afraid? Immediately, the alien explained that they could communicate via thoughts, it would be able to understand him just fine. Clifford continued to communicate with the entity using his mind. The
1: alien claimed that it was being held prisoner here, though it had been told it was a guest
2: of the U.S. government. The alien explained that he'd been marched from place to place at gunpoint. He wasn't allowed to leave. He was trapped by the soldiers around him. And he never intended to visit. He'd been left accidentally by his people following a crash. As the alien relayed all this
1: information, it and Clifford were still being observed by military superiors, including the colonel. To avoid suspicion, Clifford had to carry on a regular conversation aloud. He relayed what the alien was saying to him, to his commanding officer, while at the same time absorbing and responding to the alien's
2: mental messages. In short, it was a confusing, difficult task. But by the end of the conversation, Clifford was resolved as to his next action. He was going to help this alien escape. He asked
1: the Colonel for a brief break to gather his thoughts and recover from the intense
2: conversation. In the break room, Clifford located a friend of his named Mike. He gave Mike a simple task, find a pair of wire cutters. They agreed on a drop point where Mike could leave the tool for Clifford to find later. Then they separated, and Clifford returned to the colonel. Now was the most dangerous part of his plan. Clifford told the colonel that the alien had alerted him to an impending danger. All personnel were advised to back away at least a hundred yards. The colonel believed him and retreated with all of his men. At Clifford's command, all the soldiers looked to the sky, waiting for some spectacular event. This gave Clifford the time he
1: needed to escape with the alien. Clifford retrieved the wire cutters and led him to the perimeter fence, hoping the Cloak of Night would prevent the Colonel from seeing what he was
2: up to. He began cutting a hole in the chain links. Suddenly, flashlight beams landed on Clifford from all directions. They'd been caught. Guards had guns pointed at them, ready to fire. Clifford closed his eyes and prepared for the worst. But suddenly, the colonel yelled to the
1: men, saying, Halt! The guards complied, and at that moment,
2: a brilliant, shining disc appeared in the sky above their heads. A beam emerged from the disc's underbelly, and the ship lowered to the ground over the alien. He disappeared in the beam of light, though Clifford said the ship was low enough to the ground that the alien might have entered through a hatch on the bottom. Either way, before anyone knew what happened, the Entity and the disc were
1: both gone. Clifford stared at the Colonel, feeling utterly exposed
2: and alone. A long silence followed. Then... The Colonel walked over to Clifford. He asked the soldier why he'd helped the alien escape. Clifford gave a simple, honest answer. Because he was our guest. I was helping a guest. Clifford waited for the colonel to explode. He didn't know if he'd be
1: arrested for his crimes or if he'd face more deadly consequences. But he never anticipated that the colonel would actually agree with Clifford's actions.
2: Though the colonel was displeased, Clifford claims that he saw the logic. The colonel simply asked that next time Clifford hatched a plan, he let the colonel in on it. He couldn't promise that he would have let it happen, but as Clifford's commanding officer, it was his right and his duty to know about any schemes Clifford might be cooking up. His tone was genial and maybe even admiring.
1: So for now, Clifford was in the clear. The colonel admitted that the Army needed his skills and alien expertise too desperately to have him arrested or punished for his help in the daring escape.
2: The colonel proved as good as his word. Clifford continued to serve for many more years, albeit only periodically. UFOs, he explains, simply don't crash very often. He would go on only 10 more retrieval missions in all. But thanks to this work, Clifford began to form a complete portrait of these aliens' motivations and plans. Like the individual he'd helped to free, they were mostly benign, even benevolent creatures. Clifford estimates that he encountered about 57
1: different species of extraterrestrials in his line of work. Most of them were utterly ignorant of the concept of war and baffled to see humans wantonly
2: destroying each other. They'd come to Earth thousands of years ago and acted as dispassionate observers, watching human behavior and reporting back to their superiors. Now with humans on the verge of nuclear war, they were getting nervous. Nervous for the day when humans might turn to the heavens and hold the aliens hostage with their powerful new technology. But they were also fond of humans. They had to be. They'd been observing and befriending
1: them for so long, having made contacts like Clifford all over the globe, across
2: the ages. Soon, Clifford would experience even more terrifying and unbelievable brushes with alien life and he began to chafe at the heavy secrecy around these encounters. Was he just supposed to sit quietly by while events of galactic importance were happening to him?
1: Clifford says that he signed a document that swore him to lifelong silence on these matters, one he calls the Standard Agreement Form No. 4193. He noted the U.S. legal code describing the punishments for leaking information
2: about these encounters, including fines and jail time. In spite of the harsh penalties, Clifford began to ignore the secrecy required of him. He was seeing incredible things, information he believed the public deserved to know. In 1969 alone, Clifford had encounters in Indiantown Gap and in Cambodia, as well as his successful escape with the alien. And the years that followed brought only more wonders. But during his
1: government service, Clifford had confirmed the existence of aliens. He'd learned about their culture. He determined that the strange presences he'd felt and the figures he'd talked to throughout his life were, indeed, extraterrestrial in nature.
2: And now he wanted to prove it. Clifford began collecting every document he could get his hands on, anything from the government that discussed UFOs. He was still involved with the crash retrieval arm of the military at this point, which offered him high-level clearance and access to sensitive documents, other items he obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, which allowed him to request declassified documents. Over time, Clifford began to amass quite a collection, and he began to speak publicly about
1: his beliefs not yet about his supposed encounters, but just about his interest in UFOs, his certainty that alien life existed in the
2: universe. Unfortunately, even those illusions were too much in the minds of his superiors. Clifford feared, in his words, that they would put him somewhere so remote that they had to pump sunshine down to him. So now that he
1: was talking openly, was the government just going to stand by and watch?
2: According to Clifford, as he became more open about his interest in alien life, powerful authorities found ways to retaliate, to keep him quiet, and to destroy his credibility. After decades of service to his country, Clifford came to believe that
1: he was being persecuted by his own government. And in the ensuing battle, Clifford would pay a heavy price.
2: Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on Clifford Stone, amongst the many sources we used, we found his books Eyes Only and UFOs Are Real extremely helpful to our research. Next week, Clifford takes on the U.S. government in his quest to reveal what he'd learned. And will evaluate whether the stories he was spreading were really true at all. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify
1: is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Extraterrestrial,
2: for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't
1: forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast network
2: we'll see you next time extraterrestrial was created by max cutler it's a production of cutler media and part of the parcast network it's produced by max and ron cutler sound designed by kenny hobbs with production assistance by ron shapiro and joel stein additional production assistance by maggie admire and travis clark this episode of extraterrestrial was written by thomas dolan gavitt and stars bill thomas and tim johnson